many of you will know that I grew up in California, and it is a beautiful state. It is an expensive state, and it is, in the eyes of many, a peculiar state. Peculiar politics, some would argue. Peculiar people, others would point to. Even peculiar sports. So I have shared before that in the town I grew up in, Folks didn't care as much about football as they cared about water polo. Far more fascinating sport to them. And that's the sport I played, and yet to stay in shape, I had to swim. Much like a football player might run track in the offseason, or much like a soccer player might run cross-country to keep himself in shape. So I swam, and at first I loathed it, but I actually began after a while to like it. And so when my senior year of high school rolled around, after water polo ended in the fall, I didn't take any time off. I jumped right in the pool and prepared for spring swimming. I had a good junior year, and I wanted to see just how fast I could sort of finish off my high school career. And so I gave myself to it two hours every evening, often an hour in the morning, a couple hours on Saturday. I was swimming 22, 25 miles a week, and my times were dropping. I was feeling great. I was excited. And of course, you do all of it for one meet, right? All this training, all this preparation for a single meet, what we refer to as state sectionals. But to get there, of course, you had to qualify at a regional event. And I had done that the previous two years, so I wasn't too worried. I wasn't even really tapering for that event, but for the big event to come. And yet, as that regional meet rolled around, I got sick the week of the meet. And then when I came to to my best event, total rookie mistake. Dove in, goggles around my eyes, half in my mouth. By the time I took a half stroke and pulled them off, it was like a runner stumbling out of the blocks and falling to his knees, right? There was just no hope of recovering after that poor start. And so just like that, it was over. All the hours, all the sacrifice, and I, humanly speaking, had absolutely nothing to show for it. No chance to race sectionals, and like that, my swimming career just sank to the bottom of the pool. Now, I don't share all that to elicit your sympathy. I don't share it to elicit pity, but I use that as an example because maybe you know something of what that's like. To give yourself towards something only to see whatever it is, whatever it was, to see that come crashing down. So maybe you're here and you're a student. And you gave yourself to an ACT exam. You spent years preparing for it only to have that exam go poorly. You were never really able to bring up your scores. Or maybe there was a promotion that you spent a career trying to secure only to find that that when it came, you got passed over. Or maybe it was a marriage. You gave everything to that marriage only in the end to have it come crumbling down. I guess my question is this. Is that what it's going to be like for those who follow Jesus? Will we give everything to him with little or nothing to show for it in the end? In other words, will Jesus, will following Jesus, will it finally be worth it? Will it be worth it? 
Well, friends, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 31. So 834 through chapter 9, verse 1. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you don't happen to have a Bible, we often have them, usually have them, pre-COVID, there in the seatbacks before you. But in the absence of that, what we've done is we've uh, printed the text of the sermon there in the worship guide. So you can find it on page 9. If you don't happen to have a Bible, you can look on page 9 there of the worship guide. And last week, we started this new series on what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, the first half of Mark, as we noted, was just consumed with that question of Jesus' own identity, right? Who is Jesus? And some thought he was a rabbi. Others thought he was more of a rabble rouser. Others thought Jesus was literally demon-possessed, given some of the remarkable and crazy, in their minds, things that he said. But finally... In chapter 8, verse 29, we're now years into his ministry. We saw last week week that it finally clicked for Peter. He confessed Jesus as the Christ, as the, the promised king and Messiah of God's people. So that's the profession in 829, of which really the whole book hinges on that profession of Peter's. Now with it, now Jesus grabs the disciples and begins from there the slow march toward Jerusalem. And on that march, he's going to be really focusing and teaching his disciples what it means for they to follow him. What does it mean for them to follow him? In other words, what does Jesus's messiahship mean for their own discipleship? That's really the key question as they march to Jerusalem, chapter 8, verse 31, all the way through 10, verse 52. Those chapters we're going to be in in the next few weeks. And last week we saw that the reigning Messiah will first be the rejected Messiah before he is ever the risen Messiah. But that message of Christ's rejection, that message of his own humiliation, well, of course, that didn't sit too well with Peter. Because with Jesus, the disciples were thinking, all right, we're headed right for palaces and penthouses of honor. We're not destined for prison But when Jesus talks about rejection and humiliation and shame, he's rocking their world and their own understandings. So recall, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus has to rebuke Peter. And now the question is, in the eyes of the disciples, no doubt, if such rejection is in store for Jesus, what will be in store for his followers? Will the rejection and humiliation that Jesus bears, will they have to bear that as well? And if so, is that going to be worth it? So let's pick up 8, 34 through 9, 1. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, 
there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come after it has come, rather, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All right, so if Jesus' words back in, in verse 31, if those words were surprising to the disciples, these words of Jesus would have been outright scandalous. So all this talk of self-denial and forfeiting souls, of crosses and paradoxes, this would have left the disciples, they would have been flummoxed, they would have been frustrated, thoroughly confused, bothered and upset by what Jesus has just taught. So what do these verses teach us? As they're aimed at the disciples, what do they have to teach us about following Jesus? And I think in a simple sentence, Jesus' words teach us this. That to follow Christ is to forfeit everything in favor of Christ. If you're looking for one sentence summary, I think there it is. To follow Christ is to forfeit everything in favor of Christ. So just to to help see this from the text, notice Jesus begins in verse 34 with an invitation. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So verse 34 is really the central idea of the passage. And everything else builds off that main exhortation of Jesus' in verse 34. And notice how the next four verses, right, 35 through 38, they all begin with this word for, right, for whoever would save his life will lose it, 35, 36, for what does it profit a man, verse 37, for what can a man give, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me, right, all those verses are serving to support They're really giving sort of the justification and the explanation behind that teaching in verse 34, that invitation. And then notice he closes, chapter 9, verse 1, with with really a word of motivation. That some there would not die before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So catch the structure, invitation, verse 34, that's the headline verse, followed by explanation, 35 to 38, followed by a word of motivation, chapter 9, verse 1. So if we're going to break down those three movements, that's going to serve as our our outline broadly, right? Just for you note takers, we're going to have the invitation, the way of following Jesus. That's verse 34. Invitation, the way of following Jesus. Explanation is going to be the wisdom of following Jesus. That's 35 to 38. So explanation, the wisdom of following Jesus. And then thirdly, there's the motivation, the wonder of following Jesus. So the way of following Jesus, the wisdom, and then the wonder. All right, those are basically the outline. If somehow you missed it, you'll get it as we go along. All right, first, invitation. Invitation, this is verse 34, the way of following Jesus. The way of following Jesus. Right there, he says, notice, if anyone would come after me. And that word for come is is literally follow. If anyone would follow after me. Because as we've seen in Mark, that's what disciples are. Disciples of Jesus are those who follow Jesus. Which is why before disciples were ever called Christians, they were called followers of the way. You can see that in Acts 9. It's not until Acts 11, much later, that they're called Christians. They're followers In other words, disciples, here's what they're not by implication. It means they're not autonomous, 
They're not independent. They're not self-determining, self-governing individuals. No, they're followers. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then what? Does he say, get ready for riches, right? Open that bank account up in the Bahamas, get ready for the cash to flow. Is that what he says? Is he, does he say, okay, get ready for a kind of cush life on the couch, you know, a life free from pain and suffering? Or does he say, get ready for positions of prominence and, and power, you know, have that resume, that CV already, get that professional portrait taken and get ready to, to be going places. Recall, that's what the disciples were expecting They had it all mapped out. They thought they were riding Jesus' coattails, so to speak, all the way to the White House. That's what they were expecting. And yet, in the previous verses, he's just dropped a bucket of cold water right on their heads, talking about rejection and shame. And with their heads still reeling, he's going to dump more cold water on them. Because he's going to say, if you want to follow me, there are two conditions. First, deny yourself. And then secondly, take up your cross. And then, and only then, can we talk about you being one of my disciples. Now when he says, deny yourself, this is not Jesus saying something like, uh, you know, give up chocolate for Lent. That's not the kind of denying yourself that Jesus has in mind. He's not talking fundamentally about asceticism or self-discipline or denying ourselves pleasure. That's not what he's getting at. He doesn't say deny yourself something but someone, namely you. That's what he's getting at. He's saying deny yourself you. So Jesus is calling us in that command to turn Turn from self-absorption, turn from self-admiration, turn from self-pity, from self-indulgence, from self-reliance, from self-seeking, all of those behaviors that mark us. He's saying turn from those. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, an immediate challenge we have when we read those words is that we have a sentimentalized, often, image of the cross in our minds so we can sing of that old, rugged cross. We even fashion such things into luxury items. You know, we make crosses of gold and silver, often studded with precious gems and jewels. Crosses in our minds are often respectable and and admirable. And even in some societies, crosses are a kind of status symbol. But in the first century, the cross was not a status symbol. It was the antithesis of that. The cross was a despised symbol. It was an utterly despised symbol. For the cross was a form of torture where victims were subjected to a kind of unmitigated and vicious cruelty. It was not used, the cross wasn't, it wasn't used on Roman citizens. It was used against Rome's enemies for the worst forms of, of traitors and of terrorists. And the practice of 
putting people on crosses. The practice of crucifixion was so barbaric and it was indeed so savage that that word cross would just never be uttered in polite Roman society. You wouldn't dream of uttering it for all that it would bring to mind. And in the book of Mark, this is the first mention we've heard of a cross yet in the book. And no doubt the mention of a cross, it's not like there's an Old Testament image of crosses. Right? That pretty much doesn't exist. Not as the disciples would have understood it. So no doubt for Jesus to talk about taking up one's cross, well, that would have shocked his own audience. And that would have created a visceral reaction in them. They likely would have recoiled visibly at that moment as Jesus taught them. You know, today it might be analogous to Jesus saying, go grab your swastika and then come follow me. In the sense that in World War II Germany, for a Jew, a swastika was the symbol of oppression and evil. In much the same way, the cross was for Jews the oppression of Roman, the symbol of Roman oppression and of Roman evil. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they don't have a category. Their skin is likely crawling. It is repulsive. And yet, that inexplicably is the image that Jesus grabs and appropriates for any, for these Jews that want to follow him. And it would have left them, I think, speechless and aghast and no doubt angry. You know, it's one of the reasons why when Natalie read earlier from 1 Corinthians 1, what is Paul having to do? He's having to explain how the cross is what? It's scandalous to Jews and Gentiles. It is a stumbling block. It is not an acceptable image. And yet Jesus grabs that image when he talks about what it means to be a disciple. So when he says, take up your cross, just to be really clear, he's not saying throw some bling on your neck. He's not saying that. He's not even using it merely as a metaphor for hardship. So sometimes we'll talk about a really hard day with a boss, with a cruel boss, or a difficult teacher, or maybe an exhausting friend. And we might say in passing, oh, I had to bear my cross today. But that's not how Jesus means it here. To take up one's cross in Jesus' day, it meant only one thing. Be prepared to die. Be prepared to die. That's it. So get, notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you want to follow me, it's all about denial and death. Those are the necessary conditions. Now the ESV says, you know, let him you know, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. But just to be clear in English, those words are imperatives. The NIV picks it up, I think, a bit clearly when it says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and must take up his cross. So Jesus isn't giving suggestions. He's not saying, listen, I know I've set the bar pretty high, but if it's a little bit too high for you, there's another way, a bit of an easier way. No, he's not doing that. He's not leaving it up for us to decide. He is telling us, if you intend to follow me, deny yourself and prepare to die. And then you're welcome to get in line. Well, you can imagine how well Jesus' words, how they must have fallen on the ears of the crowd. 
And notice this wasn't just a command that Jesus is giving to like missionaries in the 1040 window. He's not just giving it even to religious leaders. Notice the beginning of verse 34, Jesus is not just referring, speaking here to his disciples. He's speaking to the crowds as well. He's speaking to all who would follow him. Friends, I think this is one of the reasons as Christians, we need to be really careful when we share the gospel. That we're not selling a kind of of repackaged self-help. Because that message, yeah, it might sound a bit appealing, but Jesus is not saying that he is the pathway here to sort of the better you or the fuller you. And I just just wonder, is is that the message you heard? I wonder if that's the the message that you believed in some way or at least you, you thought you accepted when you came to Christ. Because Christianity says, listen, it's not about the pathway to the better you or the fuller you. The basic Christian message is give up on you. Write yourself off. Die to you and then come die to me. Again, if you profess faith in Christ, is that the invitation that you responded to when you responded to Christ, when you accepted him? Was it deny yourself? Or did you respond to something that was more about sort of be your best self? Because we live, no doubt, in a celebrity culture. And that's not a whole lot different in Jesus' day. You can just read 1 Corinthians and you can read about celebrity culture. We live in a celebrity culture too. And our hearts, right? What do we want? We want to be our own celebrities. But Jesus is saying, hey, when you follow me, you got to forget the celebrity life. It's the cross life or you lose your life eternally. Forget your reputation. He's saying forget all those wonderful plans you had for your life. All those dreams and all those aspirations that had you at the center of them. He's saying burn them. Torch them. Flush them down the toilet and instead get ready for a life of persecution and pain and shame. That's what Jesus is holding out. And if you're unwilling to do that, he says, you can't be my disciple. Now that is undoubtedly radical teaching. Because friends, following Jesus, we can never misunderstand It's not a pleasant afternoon stroll through a meadow. It's not a day by the sea. Jesus is not simply calling us when we come to him to make a few minor adjustments to our lives. He is calling us to fundamentally give up our lives. So I wonder, has following Jesus required you to give up anything? I wonder what, if anything, you have had to forfeit for Jesus. That's the key thing. For him. For the gospel's sake. Just think about him. Just think about that moment. What have you had to forfeit for Jesus for the sake of the gospel? Because if you have forfeited nothing of real value... Recognize that says everything about the value you place on Christ. You know, to put it more bluntly, if following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, 
It's because you're following a Jesus who simply isn't the Christ. Not this Jesus. You're not following him. Jesus sets an extraordinarily high bar. So maybe ask yourself this. When you come to teachings like this, if you're struggling, right? Not willing to give up everything for Christ. Are you willing to at least pray that you would be made willing? Will you at least start by praying? I'm not sure I'm willing, but Lord, would you make me willing? Because to follow Christ is to willingly suffer for Christ. There's simply not another way. That's verse 34. That is the way of Jesus. And it is a tall order. And it just begs the question, okay, who in their right mind would choose that way? Why would anyone choose that way? It seems illogical. And this is where he really gets to the sort of explanation and he gives some reasons. He's going to talk to us and he's trying to com compel us to help see the wisdom of following Jesus. Right, so point two, we're getting to now the explanation. We've thought about the invitation and the way. Now here's the explanation and the wisdom of following Jesus. The wisdom of following Jesus, point two. And in verses 35 to 38, what Jesus does is he presents a, a paradox of sorts using this wordplay between this English word for life and soul, which is just the same word in the Greek. And so it's, it's a play in the original language. And Jesus' basic argument is this. Only those who give up their lives will finally gain them. That's basically what he's arguing. Only those who give up their lives will finally gain their lives. For the one who seeks to save his life, Jesus says, right, his earthly existence, to preserve this life, he says, those will lose it in the life to come, eternally. But the one who loses this earthly existence, the willingness to do that, who gives that up, well, that one will save their life, their soul, eternally. So that's the basic thrust of what Jesus starts in verse 36. That's the paradox. Only those who give up their lives will finally gain their lives. But the key is why. Why do they give them up? Well, Jesus says, for my sake and the gospels. So again, he's not teaching salvation by self-sacrifice. You know, just give up your life and you gain life. No, he says, do it for me, right? For my sake, Jesus says, and then you'll gain it. And friends, if you think about that claim of Jesus, that's an astounding claim. Jesus is arguing here, and he's going to say the same thing in verse 38. He's going to say your eternal future rests on your response to him. That's exactly what he's teaching. What you think of me, Jesus says, and how you respond to me, well, that determines your eternal destiny. That's not just an astounding claim. That is a horrifying claim if Jesus is not, in fact, God. Because recognize that kind of a claim sounds exactly like the kind of thing you would hear from the mouth of a man like David Koresh. Like egotistical maniacs. Those are the individuals that say stuff like this. Friend, that's why Jesus, if you've come in and you're 
less familiar with the Gospels. Maybe you haven't read them much. Maybe you, don't, you didn't grow up in a, in a Christian background like I didn't. I was taught Jesus was a good teacher. That's what I was taught in my Unitarian church growing up. Friends, you can never conclude that from what he's teaching here. No good teacher would say this kind of thing. Think about it. If I stood up next week and I stood up here and I said, what you think of me and whether or not you obey me will determine your eternal destiny, you would think I'd gone crazy. You would think I was nuts. You would think, man, I've got a God complex. I mean, that would be the mark of an abusive and a controlling and a manipulative teacher. That's what cult leaders do, right? You would think, man, Brad's become a raving lunatic. And you would hopefully either run from me or happily walk me out of here as quickly as possible. You would not bow to me. And they would not bow to Jesus and see this as good unless he is God in the flesh. This Jesus is the one who's going to go on and say that they are an adulterous and sinful generation. That's what he says in verse 38. And he's not saying they're all unfaithful in their human marriages. He's rather saying they have been unfaithful to their spiritual husband, to God himself. Friends, we tell ourselves when it comes to our, our failures, our faults, our little picadillos, right? We say, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Bear with yourself. Lighten up. It's not a big deal. Friend, that's not Jesus' assessment of our own hearts. He assesses us and finds us wanting, adulterous and sinful. Those are not gentle words. He understands that in our sin, every one of us have abandoned God. We have run after the pleasures and the pursuits of others. We have been in ourselves. We have been unfaithful to God. And so it's how we respond to Jesus. Whether we are ashamed of this Jesus or whether or not we embrace this Jesus, that, we are told, is what will determine whether or not on that great judgment day, when he comes with the glory of his Father and the holy angels, what we think of Jesus determines everything. That's what he's teaching. Verse 38 just restates what he says in verse 35. And recognize, friend, it is only because Jesus is the Son of God, that he is in fact a God incarnate, that he can make a claim like this and still be a good teacher. And that we don't commit him right to some asylum, but instead we bow the knee and we worship him. Notice again the paradox. He's saying it's the losers who are the keepers. The only way to finally keep your life is to lose it, he says, for me. It's kind of like that old uh, TV game show, right? The Price is Right. I think it may still be on TV. I have no idea. It's like the price is right, but in reverse. So you know on the show, when you win the game, then you get to keep all the stuff, right? The boat, the trip to the Bahamas, whatever. Like that's, you win the game and you get to keep all the stuff. Jesus is saying, lose your life for me and for the sake of the gospel, and only then do you get to really keep your life eternally. And notice, it's not just for Jesus' sake, it's for the gospel's sake. 
Of course, that word gospel means good news. We saw it only once before, all the way back in Mark chapter 1. Jesus' opening words. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, in this good news. And thus we've seen throughout the book, what is this good news? Well, it has everything to do with who this Jesus is. Who is he? His life, his claims, and then how you respond to those claims. But it's not just what you think of Jesus privately. It's not just what you think of him privately. Because for the gospel, oh, I think that implies that some of the disciples here who are listening will lose their lives, not merely for following Jesus privately, but for sharing him publicly. And that's, of course, what we see in Acts. The disciples who don't just follow Jesus privately, but very much do so publicly, sharing about him publicly. Because following Jesus is always more than merely imitating him. It is also sharing him. Because that's what the gospel's about. Friend, the way of the cross is paradoxically the way of life. So if you pursue a life of ease and of comfort and of acceptance from the world you will not find eternal life. You will not find it. Only those, he says, who give up their lives will one day gain them. Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all of your attachments in life look weak by comparison. They look weak by comparison. So again, my Christian friend, if you're here, I trust we're, <laughs> trust many of you are, Right, so just think. Think about your life. What does your bank statement? What does your credit card? What about your calendar? Think of the conversations you've had this week. What do they reveal about where your hopes truly lie? Is it all about the here and the now? Is it about how you can preserve your life at all costs? Make this life kind of your best life? And I wonder if you've come and you're a young adult here this morning. And you're coming and you're listening. I know what it was like to be a new Christian and to be a young adult. I just want to ask you, how does Jesus factor into your future? Or is it all about college and grad school and work and marriage? Is Jesus merely an accessory to your life that you're trying to make fit into all the plans that you have for your own life? Is that how you think about Jesus? Is he just like the side dish to the entree of what you expect out of your life? If so, Jesus is saying, you can't truly be my disciple you're not ready. He's saying you still value something more than me and I demand undivided loyalty. And he's not done. Verse 36 and verse 37. He's going to now turn and in these two verses he's going to grab the images of the marketplace to support what he said earlier. So he's using this commercial language and he's trying to say, listen, actually giving your life to me, it's a good deal. He's saying it's a good deal. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return? Or better, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer to both those questions is, of course, nothing. Nothing at all. 
But friends, does that stop us from trying? Does it stop us from trying? Some of you may have read Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Well, in it, Dorian, character in the book, becomes convinced that only a hedonistic life of sensual pleasure and excess is worth living. So to quote the book, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. I think that's a worldview many would hold to today. He basically decides to sell a soul so that a portrait of himself will age and fade, but he himself will not. He can have all the world's pleasures and excesses and youth and beauty and the rest. He can hold that, and yet the portrait is the thing that will age and fade. And so he gives his life over to hedonistic pursuits. And as he plunges just deeper and deeper in the book down into the moral abyss, while he remains young and handsome and vibrant, his portrait begins to take a hideous shape. And at one point in the novel, a character who's observed this transformation in his own life and has observed Dorian's quest you know, for the good life, so to speak, quotes these very words of Jesus to Dorian. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Well, those words haunt Dorian. For deep down, he knows the answer. And he knows the answer is nothing. It profits nothing. And if you know how the book ends, you know what that bargain that he made, you know that deal that he made, you know that deal will cost him everything in the end. Sadly, friends, that is the bargain, that is the deal we attempt to make with the world all the time. We believe that true meaning and true happiness and true life will be found in pursuing what? In the acclaim, the adulation, the authority. It'll be found in the affluence and all the amusements of the world. That's where we run, even though we know it's going to turn to ash. We run there every time. Such an investment, Jesus says, there is no return on it. It profits nothing, yet will cost everything. And still, how many of us will wake up tomorrow morning and will think about making that same deal again and again? And the problem is not only at the end of that will we feel bankrupt by it, but we become our souls. We literally bankrupt our own souls For the larger problem he's going to say is, listen, is there anything we can then give in exchange for our soul? Verse 37. And Peter's hearkening back to Psalm 49, verses 6 to 8. And that psalm speaks to those who have great riches and great wealth and who trust in them. And yet they can never be rich enough to ransom their own soul. Friends, that is true for every one of us here. The spiritual debts we have run up by our own disobedience, they are infinitely higher than any assets we own or any good works we could possibly attempt to do. So Jeff Bezos right now is the richest man in the world. I think his, his net worth is validated something like $200 billion now, and that's even after he paid out a $40 billion settlement to his wife last year, his ex-wife. So that is, he is the richest man in the world. 
And you could have all of that money. And it still would not be enough to ransom your life from a holy God. It wouldn't be enough. The debt of your sins, even the debt of one of your sins, against an infinitely holy good God. Friend, the the debt of that one sin would be too great for all the assets in the world. You cannot ransom your soul. And the good news, though, though that is punishing news, the good news is that there is one who can. There is one who can. So if you've come and you're like, yeah, I've made that deal that Dorian made. I've given myself to the world and its pleasures and pursuits. I have found it, in fact, wanting. I know the burden and the weight and the debt of my own sins. I know what it is doing to my soul, and I don't know how to be free from it. The beautiful news that Jesus comes to share is that there is one who has paid a ransom for your own soul. It's what he's going to get to just in two chapters from now in Mark 10. He's going to say, he came, the son of man, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to God. Jesus had no debts to his account. Jesus had a crude life of just perfect and infinite credit before God. So on the cross, Colossians 2 says, Jesus canceled that record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. And in exchange, he offers us his perfect righteousness, the credit of a perfect life that we have not lived. That's what Jesus holds out to us. On the cross, he will take the debt of our sins and give us the credit of his own righteousness. Friend, if you've come and you feel the punishing weight of your sins, repent and believe in Jesus. You don't need to work for it. He offers it as a free gift. Repent and believe in him, and he will exchange your debts for a life of infinite credit. That's what he offers to you. You can be forgiven. You can trust in Christ. The question Jesus would ask you is simply, what's keeping you? What's keeping you? Recognize the kingdom, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, however costly it may seem, he's saying it is a bargain at any price. It is a bargain at any price. So I read this week, Tesla's stock is trading at a like, price to earnings ratio, over a thousand. I don't remember what it was, but over a thousand, which means practically you have to pay a thousand dollars for a dollar's worth of earnings which means at that rate, it will take you a 1,000 years to get that investment back at the present earnings. Zoom, which some of us have grown to both love and hate, is trading at like 1,500. So humanly speaking, those look like incredibly expensive and bad investments. And it may seem to you like Jesus' offer is not a very good offer. It seems like an awfully pricey and expensive offer. But Jesus is saying his kingdom, what he offers, if we truly understood it, it is a bargain at any price, whatever price it is, right? Like the parable, the pearl with great price, Jesus is saying, even if it requires all you have, it is infinitely worth it. 
Which brings us lastly to the motivation. The motivation, the wonder of following Jesus. The wonder of following Jesus. Point three. Friend, how do we know following Jesus is worth it when the bar seems so high? Well, he closes with this word of encouragement in 9-1 that some will not die until they see the kingdom of God come, until it has come with power, he says. Now, you may have read that this week and just begs the question, what exactly is he referring to? How is this verse meant to be an encouragement to us? And there's no shortage of opinions, and I'll spare you the lengthy debates right now. And simply note this, when we read this teaching in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, it always immediately precedes the transfiguration, right? The next event we'll think about next week, where Jesus becomes radiant and splendor when he's transfigured before them on the mountain. And friend, I don't think that's by accident, because as we'll see next week, the transfiguration serves as a kind of heavenly preview, if you will. It's a heavenly preview of what's to come in Jesus' own ministry, because his crucifixion is horrific as it was. Well, it's not the end of the story. The kingdom will come in power at his resurrection, then at his ascension, and at his coronation, the coronation that happens there at Pentecost and in Acts 2. Because in the New Testament, God's kingdom, well, it comes with power right when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit descends to empower God's people. Do you remember the promise of Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right, The presence of God's Spirit in his people, Right, it would no longer, God's presence, it would not just dwell in temples made by human hands. God's presence would not merely dwell among them, it would dwell powerfully in them is the promise. You know, friends, for us, it's so easy to doubt God. And even with the presence of the Spirit, to wonder what in the world God is doing. What is he up to? You know, in seasons of temptation, we will wonder, has God forsaken us? I mean, why else would I be here? That's what we'll ask. Has God forsaken me? In seasons of failure, we'll wonder, is God finally going to abandon me? I mean, everyone has their point, right? At which they've said enough is enough. Have I reached that point with God? Has he given up and will he abandon me? In seasons of trial and despair, we'll be prone to ask, like, does God love me? Does he love me? If he does, why am I still in this mess? Which is why I think we need this motivation, this promise, and to hear that the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, hey, listen, the down payment on your soul, that deposit is what is guaranteeing your future inheritance. And you can hold fast to that. That the seal of his ownership is in our hearts, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians 1.22. The Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, yeah, that receipt was paid in full. Sins atoned for. We have been ransomed by God and ransomed for God. And he now claims us as his own. And that's what this promise is pointing to. That's what they're going to see as they work throughout the rest of the New Testament. And because 
of him, because we are his, we can lose everything Jesus says and still consider it gain. Is that not what we read in 1 Corinthians 1 earlier in the service? You know what was this week, about 100 years ago, that a man was born, and this man had admittedly very humble beginnings in Portland, Oregon. He didn't have much in the way of the world's goods, but even what little he had, he was nonetheless willing to forfeit it for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel. He was a talented man, so his high school teachers thought he should have become an actor, head down to Hollywood. Others thought he should have gone into politics. He had the ability to apparently give wonderful speeches. But he gave up those professions, and instead he chose to become a linguist, studying actually in Oklahoma for a few years so that he could take the gospel to an unreached people and present it in their own tribal language. And so he spent years studying and learning before moving to South America and reflecting on our passage from Mark 8.35 that whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Reflecting on that passage, he now, or rather he wrote what we now know as those sort of immortalized words, right? He wrote these words in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we know those weren't merely empty words in a journal because in 1956, Jim Elliot and four others would be murdered as they sought to bring the gospel to those in Ecuador. Elliot understood that to follow Christ is to forfeit everything in favor of Christ. Do you? And do you believe he's worth it? Let's pray.